0: You're listening to the March 4th edition of The Close-Up, the Film Society of Lincoln Center's weekly podcast series. This is Brian Brooks, Managing Editor of FilmLink.com.
1: And this is Eugene Hernandez, Deputy Director of the Film Society. For this edition of The Close-Up, we're featuring a recent conversation with Nicholas Winding Refn and Liz Corfixson. Corfixson's documentary, My Life Directed by Nicholas Winding Refn, is currently playing here at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. In 2013, director Nicholas Winding Refn followed up his neo-noir hit Drive with the stylish thriller Only God Forgives. The film continued Refn's fruitful collaboration with actor Ryan Gosling, but it traded Drive's white-knuckle energy for a slower, more atmospheric approach. In Refn's words, if Drive was good cocaine, this would be like great old-school acid. The Bangkok-set thriller stars Gosling as a drug-smuggling expatriate who's pressured to avenge his brother's death by his overbearing mother, played by Kristen Scott Thomas. Only God Forgives divided critics at Cannes in 2013 where it received both boos and standing ovations at its press screening.
0: For the film's production, Ruffin uprooted his family to Bangkok for six months. During this time, his wife, Liv Korfixen, decided to also pick up a camera and film her husband's creative process during the hectic shoot. The resulting footage became the new documentary, My Life Directed by Nicholas Winding Refn, and it offers a rare glimpse at one of contemporary world cinema's most enigmatic figures. As the title suggests, the film is also about Corfixen's own relationship with the director, which is best summed up by her own conclusion that he is a difficult man to live with, but I love him anyway. For the opening of My Life Directed by Nicholas Winding Refn here at the Film Society of Lincoln Center, the couple stopped by for a post-screening, Q and A moderated by Rolling Stone's David Fear. Following this, we'll go to an in-depth discussion with Reffin from the opening of Only God Forgives, back in 2013. This live event was moderated by our own John Wildman. But first, let's go to the Q and A with Liv Corfixen and Nicholas Winding Reffin from this past Saturday.
2: we wait for your husband or should we just go,
3: just go. we can just go yeah
2: all right <laughs> um congratulations on this thank you uh, i know you said at the beginning you said oh i, I he's going to be away for eight to ten months i don't want to be away from him anymore uh, at what point did the idea of actually grabbing a camera and documenting him making this movie come up as an idea to sort of you know keep you busy while you were there
3: was after a month I think we've been in Bangkok for a month and I was like there was a flooding and we couldn't go out we couldn't leave the area or like the building and I suddenly felt like trapped uh, that I would just stay in those malls for six months being a housewife and I was like
1: <laughs>
3: what should I do and then uh
2: you know this guy right <laughs>
3: Yeah, so I, I talked to the line producer if he could get me a camera and uh, sort of just uh, had the idea that I would film the process of the filmmaking and then it kind of developed while I was doing it that I, okay, oh, I think I'm going to do this documentary but you in the beginning I didn't in really know. the bedroom
4: when I'm half asleep with a camera and say I'm going to film you for the next six months on.
3: <laughs> yeah, he didn't have a choice. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Did you feel like you got to see a different side of him actually like on a set making a movie as opposed to the guy who's having problems with a coconut while your kid dances naked on the table or who's just kind of hanging out in your living room with the once upon a time in a West poster in the background? We've
4: been together for 20 years.
3: (laughs) Yeah, no, I actually, because this is, this is how it is every time. I mean, Nicholas is, it's not only with Only God Forgives, he's in this mood. It's like, I've seen it over and over with every movie <laughs> so it's nothing new to me um, but of course I was there with him every day when he was shooting and normally I just visit sets and stuff but uh, no so I, was kind of, I kind of knew what I was going into
2: <laughs> Did you know what you were you were getting into by actually having someone there with a camera kind of documenting while you're trying to find this film as it's going on?
4: Uh, well, we had been the subject of a documentary about ten years ago.
2: Oh, sorry, uh, about ten years ago,
4: um, t- for this feature about our, our lives and about uh, I had gone bankrupt and all these things. So we had tried it before, but with another woman doing it. Mm-hmm. And then when Liv wanted <coughs> to do it, it was like, I mean, I'm 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 a huge admirer of reality television. I think that.
5: And it shows, <laughs> yeah, in your films.
4: <laughs> I was like, if I'm going to be naked, then I might as well take all my clothes off. <laughs> and, and so, but in a way, it was very fer- therapeutic for me because I don't know if there's any filmmakers here, but you basically spent your entire time lying to everyone. <laughs> because inside, you know, outside you have to give this confidence of this is going to work. And inside, you know, you're just always scared. But you can't say that to anyone because then they get scared. And if they get scared, you know, everything is destroyed. So you basically have to go around being really happy and confident but and lie. And then with her, I can at least tell her what it was really like. So it was almost
2: like therapeutic in a way. Or it became like that. Do you think it was actually easier because it was someone behind the camera that you knew?
4: Well, I think that, you know, if, you know, we had a sex life. So, I mean, they, they were... <laughs> <laughs> you know, at least she had seen me in my worst situations. You know, <laughs> so,
2: so, so, there was nothing I could hide. Uh, were there any ground rules that you guys set down immediately? Like, yes, you can document this process, but a, you can't show me doing. You can't can't show me talking to X, Y, or Z. You can't show me that doing this. But no,
3: uh, I mean, it was pretty much. Nichols was open to that I filmed everything and also the actors which I was kind of nervous about but they were so cool about it so I just <laughs> documented everything I could I mean so there was no nose or yeah he, he has an exhibitionistic side to him
4: what do you mean <laughs> you put yourself <laughs> in a poster
3: yeah you're just jealous that I did that <laughs> uh, <laughs> and it wasn't you yeah. um, yeah, no, so so I, there wasn't like anything that he didn't want me to shoot.
2: It's funny because there's that one moment where you say, well, you're not letting me film you in crisis, and he just looks like he's perpetually in crisis. And any in a moment, <laughs> head in his hands, just <laughs> like he's, you're filming him now. <laughs>
3: yeah i mean sometimes he has those moods like the day before he walks around and like trying to get out of him what's wrong what's wrong and he won't tell he won't tell and it's it's more about that situation and it's you know that annoyed me sometimes i'm like trying to like what is it what's going on in your head and he just won't tell me um so i'm sort of referring to
4: like
2: normal stuff yeah (laughs) <laughs> did it affect the having a camera around? Did it affect the actual process of making this movie? Oh no, no, no.
4: not in this day and age. Everyone has a camera. Yeah, you know. It, it
2: how much footage did you end up with at the end of this?
3: I had so much. Uh, it took me like three months to look through it all. Uh, I don't know how. I mean, four hundred hours or something. Oh my God. <laughs> I mean so
2: like let's talk about the editing process. I don't know how you got that down to like a tight you know one hour
3: no i mean that was why it was important that i watched everything before we started editing so i and that was like the toughest part of making the movie because there was so much stuff i had to look through uh but i had a very good editor and we sort of just it was fairly easy to see what worked and what didn't work and like i mean of course there were you have to like kill your darlings <laughs> there was <laughs> like so so many scenes with nicholas and ryan having fun and you're like it's okay nothing wrong with that, that nothing <laughs> wrong with that. um yeah but it, it was pretty like i could tell right away this is a scene that works and you right. know, so just like yes check 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 and like no 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 so it's like it just different. took a lot of time
2: when you guys look at this now, we're going to open this up to questions in just a second, but when you guys look at this now, what goes through your head? Because watching this, it feels like this was a slightly traumatic experience making this movie. And you're obviously like documenting somebody you know who you've built a life with and that you love going through what seems like a very deep depression trying to like get this thing moving and get it made.
3: Yeah, in a way it was, but I feel, I mean... It was harder because of Bangkok, I think, for me and for the children. Because every time Nicholas do a movie, it's like this. And I sort of felt in a way that, ha-ha, now I can show him how awful this is for me, you know. I could also have called it, like, my life dictated by Nicholas Winding <laughs> record, <you> know, <laughs> instead of directed by it, But it's because f- I feel like every time we go this, through this crisis, every time he shoots a movie, you know, it's like up and down, up and like here. It's like, oh, like the end of the world every time. And you, it after is you the, end of the after world, like yeah. 10 <laughs> films, you're like, here we go again <laughs> the next four months, you know? So,
2: well, and you know, as you bring up repeatedly in the movie, like you just had this smashing success, and people were referring to you and Ryan as like, you know, the De Niro and Scorsese for this new century, and that. You know, it's not just making a movie. It's suddenly like making a movie that's better than the last film you did. Or what everyone's expecting, which was, you know, drive redux. And you're like, this is not it. This is not it. This is not it.
4: Well, I mean, I go through a process every time I make a film is that when to make a new film, you have to destroy what you did before. And, you know, so that was his normal routine. It's a bit like, because it's the only way to do something new is to destroy what you just learned or to destroy safety because when when you do something that works there's a great comfort in that there's a great joy in when something you feel works you know for an audience financially but it's also the most dangerous thing because now you know the formula almost and then you can just repeat it or just do a little change of it so for me it has to basically be completely erased and. It's in the same way, you know, when Lou Reed did Transformer, which is one of the great rock albums, his next album was Metal Machine, and it was to destroy everything that had been created, or else how can you move on? How can you even challenge yourself if you don't have fear? Right. And, um, but of course, with with Drive, I had never experienced the amount of success in terms of Exposure and and the movies like any of my other movies, but the exposure was so enormous that you know, I was used to. And me and Ryan was just like new gay couple in town that they was just like everyone was just waiting when it's going to happen. And 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 <laughs> look, he kissed me. What am I going to say? Uh,
2: well, he's kissed you, but he's seen your wife naked. Right? Yeah.
4: So you know, we're very Scandinavian at our house. <laughs> So uh, you know, so there there was a lot of now that. they
2: want to know that story. <laughs> <laughs> Which one of you is going to
4: tell it? Uh, uh, you can tell the nudity story. <laughs> uh, so uh, so there was so it was more like like the sense of it had been so much fun uh-huh. making drive and the all the things that now I had to destroy everything. I had to just eliminate everything, and also the relationship and the um, the not n- meaning the 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 kind of creative uh, archetype of a man that I had done with drive was going to be so much different, you know, with only God forgives because it was going to be the exact opposite. And, you know, which is usually an archetype that, that can be very, um, you know, unappealing to a lot of people because he, it's not heroic. It's on the contrary. So the idea of destroying something to make something else was just, it was just very like, you know, freaking out, but you know, year is great.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Unless you're on a plane. Unless yeah, you're on a plane. <laughs> uh, who came up with this title?
3: I did. Uh, my editor was really against it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I just, I just liked it and I, it just came to me one day. I, would really, I couldn't figure out what I was calling the movie and it had no title and it was like it just, just came to me one day and I just stuck with it. And I just wouldn't. I just wanted it to be that title, and now I'm happy with it. So.
2: Oh, it's, <laughs> a, it's a great. T- I mean, you you know exactly what you're getting into when you get into the thing. I like the fact that you didn't go. My life directed by Nicholas Winning Reffin, who could do the dishes once in a while, please.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, he he's kind of useless in anything else <laughs> than. <laughs> he's he's really good at directing films, but otherwise, I don't know.
2: Do you guys think you would ever do this again? Are you kidding? (laughs) (laughs) No. No. I'm going to open this up for questions. Who's got questions?
4: Oh, absolutely. I mean, it...
2: Oh, sorry. Well, do you want to repeat the question? Yeah, he's saying that since um, Only God Forgives wasn't received in the States with the same sort of critical praise that Drive was, do you feel liberated by this, that now you can go on and make your next movie and you don't have yet another thing that you have to scale?
4: Well, of course, because I've destroyed every expectation, so it's like free range now. Anything is possible. But, see, there's an important fact, and I don't know how many filmmakers that are here, but there's just one real important element. It's just your film just has to make money. In the end, that's the only thing that it comes down to. And if your movie makes a dollar, it's profit, and there will always be someone to support you of that. The trick is to make them inexpensive, but make them look expensive, of course, but it really just comes down to that thing. Like after, after all the events, after all the writing, after all the festivals, after the launches and the press tours, in the end, what really matters is money. And it made money, so everybody walked away happy. Did, did it polarize the audience? Absolutely, and did it feel great? Yes. I'll do it again anytime, because that's what art is mostly all about, is, is creating diversity, because how else can it function, in my opinion?:
2: In case you didn't hear that, the movies are beautiful, and they make her cry.
4: <laughs> Thank you.:
2: Hold on, I want to make sure everybody heard that. Uh, what did you find more stressful when you were filming when you were on the set? filming the actual production or when you were filming stuff in your personal life, just around the hotel room?
3: Mm. I think it was more stressful being on set, actually, because cause, uh, so many things happened and you have to to have so many people only have this one camera, like, getting everything, what's going on. So that was more stressful to me. Plus, I felt guilty towards my kids that I was gone because it was like seven night, night uh, seven weeks of night shoots. So I knew, like... Come home 3 a.m. and you know 7 a.m. mommy mommy Uh, so that was the most stressful thing Um, and thank you so much for the nice words
2: (laughs) did everybody hear that (laughs) okay Uh, uh, well
4: there is a process that's like a self-torturing that for me works which is constantly this self-doubt becomes therapeutic because it becomes almost monotone You know, it's like listening to Tangier and Dreams. It just repeats itself, repeats itself. (laughs) And you know you can't stop it. So it's, and because I shoot films in chronological order, I I approach everything as canvas as possible in terms of painting. Um, It's always, I don't know how this is going to turn out because it may change radically. And I know it will because it always does. So the uncertainty it's a high for me, it, excite, it, you know, it excites me not knowing, at the same time, it freaks me out not knowing. So I love it and I hate it. It's a combination of the meaning of the universe. <laughs> right there. Well, I still think it's a masterpiece. <laughs> and you have to. I mean, because you can't, if you don't, no one else is. You know? So, um, you know, um, I was I was spending time with William Freakin like, a few days ago. And we were talking a lot about Sorceress, which is his movie that's kind of been rediscovered because of its time. It was a disaster, and it You know ruined him and uh, but you can see that you know he said to me now that it's coming out and finding an actual audience that appreciates it you know his attitude was still well I never stopped believing in the movie it just took 30 years for other people to see it and and so I think it's a very important mindset that you know if you don't love it no one else is gonna love it and so you just you just you you have to no matter what and, um, you know, that's the only one, that's the only thing you got. You know, that's the only thing nobody can ever take away from you. Uh, right there. Yeah.
2: We're in counseling. <laughs> <at the
3: moment>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he answered. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I sort of have a strong intuition and I sort of knew, I had a feeling that he would say something like that that the cards would say something like that, because it was a hard time in our life at that point. Uh, So I had a feeling something like that would come up, and it did. Um, And we didn't divorce, but we went through couples therapy. (laughs) So we're an advertisement for that. (laughs) Like a poster for a couple. Yeah, Uh, yeah, so we didn't destroy anything really.
2: Yet, <laughs> <laughs> the night is young. Uh, the gentleman right there in the back. Um, I don't I d- think he's seen it. it's, no it's coming
3: out it's in f- France soon, I think.
4: Yeah, I think the after th- he's seeing it, uh, he's shooting a movie right now. So um, I don't know if he had seen it. I don't. Th- he hadn't seen it when I spoke to him last week.
2: Uh, right there. Thank I mean, you, Ryan's, well, w- Ryan's kind of your Dietrich, isn't he?
4: Yeah, yes, yes. Well, uh, um, Liv's father's Frits, biological father's Frits Lang, so it's kind of an interesting parallel. Um, Boy, here we go. He's not. He My ma- ma- he, he
3: told the French press, <laughs> t- and it's in print and everything. It's, it's so got embarrassing.
4: T- got tweeted last night. you mother fucked Fitch Lang. Don't worry about it.
3: Fuck you. She met him twice she met him twice she was a big Marlene Dietrich fan and
4: like a she was young and she needed the money print but it's wishful thinking it's, it's just true. you won't be called no. Yang Lang no, yeah. no.
2: <laughs> print the legend so
4: I am the he- I'm take I'm the heritage of it I'm cl- but the, the thing about thank you very much for those wonderful words um, yes it was quite surprising at Cannes I mean um, I went to Cannes with this movie thinking, you know, can they just FedEx the palm door to me? <laughs> so I was pretty arrogant coming in. <laughs> and <laughs> and so, and it was a very, you know, anticipated because of the previous uh, time there. And so, um, when the s- morning screening happened and, you know, it set everything on fire at Cannes. And especially from a lot of american journalists there was a a very strong hatred i mean literally like they couldn't get enough in hating it and uh but what was interesting was that um and it was that the um the the younger audience the, the people that were the more online you know that 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 communicate digitally was were thank god embracing the movie in a completely different way so you know it, and and it's interesting how ov- everything is shifting in that sense you know in terms of film journalism that there's a whole community out there of young people that is actually a much stronger voice and and actually is 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 much more uh, interesting in a way and uh, they were they were they were Thank God you know, um, taking the movie on to their own possession and but it was pretty you know horrific you know being so hated um, and 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 you kind of in almost relish in it because it 's the only thing you can do just to understand um, but you know something interesting also happened there because you know i've'm i've always um I was with Cliff Martinez, the, the composer, you know, who, and he, sub- he used, you know, to, he came from Red Hot Chili Peppers. He came from, the, from, from that whole punk Rock scene. And we're sitting in Cannes on a yacht because that's what famous people do. <laughs> and, they, and, they, and, and he said, you know, I was reading, we were going through some of these really things that were tearing the movie to pieces. And I was pretty like, fuck, you know, this, God, God, I mean, Jesus, I hope, I hope the distributors... Because that's the first thing you really think about: Are they going to, are they going to change their minds? Are they going to not, you know, support it as much? And, and thank God, I, I have very good people around me. You know, at Radius, really went all the way out and, and, and made it a success, which which is great because that's the only thing nobody can take away from you. But at Cannes, it was it was very frightening. And then you know, Cliff said, "But listen, think of it like this." Right now, you're the sex pistols of cinema. The kids love you and the parents hate you. <laughs> you're in the best possible position you can ever be in. And, and that did suddenly make a lot of like, you're right because the movie just has to work for that young audience in a way. And, and so that became, it became ignited a fire to say, God damn it, I'm gonna make this work, you know. Uh, So it was, uh, but it was certainly a very
2: uh, hazy situation in the beginning. Thank you guys for sticking around, and thank you both for the film and for uh, coming here and doing the Q&A. Thank you for coming. (laughs) Tell all your friends, go see it. It will play for a week. (laughs)
0: Back in 2013, Nicholas Winding Refn joined the Film Society's John Wildman on stage for a live discussion in honor of the opening of Only God Forgives. Let's go now to that conversation.
5: Now we're going to talk for a while and then we're going to open it up to uh, questions and we will have somebody with a a, a microphone so uh, make sure you wait for the microphone before you ask your question so uh, everybody can hear you and um, but first we're going to start off Um, you know uh, I'm going to there's some some things that you you have said talking about the movie Nicholas that that I want to talk about and I want to I want to hear you expound upon them Um, and the first off was uh, you said one of the inspirations for you making the film was that you, uh, you thought it would be uh, great to make a Western in Asia. Why?
4: Well, it started with a two-picture deal. Because um, I, uh, I was going to make Only God Who Gives Before Drive. And um, so some years ago, um, I had kind of discovered that an average French film cost six million euros. And I went to Paris and met with Wild Bunch and Gaumont because I had been working with Wild Bunch on another movie and I said to them, I'll give you two movies for six. And they went, okay, And, (laughs) and then they said, okay, how about this, how about you come up with a million euros, we'll put two million euros. And I said, okay how about
1: this?
4: (laughs) You put two million euros, I'll put a million million euros, but then I write, produce, and direct. And they said, deal. But in order to finalize it, we need two synopses. I said, OK. Give me a day. And I went home (laughs) (laughs) to to kind of think about. and, And because in the independent world, The most sure in terms of financial, you know, making money is genre films that's really left. So, I came back and I said, I'll do a fight movie that's a western in Bangkok. They went, deal. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And then, from then, it was like, that was kind of the oral kind of approach to the kind of genre film. There was going to be like a classic sheriff bad guy, western mythology, set it in Bangkok, and about Muay Thai fighting. Right, now now you were
5: familiar with Bangkok because I think you had gone there on holiday, or something, and, uh, why, why did that strike you as a
4: great place to, to, to set
5: something like this?
4: Uh, well, Thailand is very popular amongst Scandinavians and people of the north because we don't have a lot of sun, and they have it in <laughs> Thailand and it's great value for your money, and they love kids, so a lot of people from that region go there, so I was coming with my wife there and our kids, and we always made a big point of going through Bangkok, because we really liked Bangkok, I just it was just like a crazy city to me, it's like a mixture of L.A. and New York, it's just gigantically insanity, but so I began to think, and I, I like, f- I came to New York when I was eight years old and stayed for 10 years with my mother and my stepfather. So I, I don't really have a kind of a l- country identity. And I actually like to travel to different places and live for a certain amount of times. So um, I thought it would be great to go to Thailand and live for six months. Wouldn't that be fun? My wife was, no, it wouldn't. <laughs> so. <laughs> And I was like, oh, okay. Uh, so I, um, I kind of like, but after like a certain amount of times coming there, I began to see, well, God, if I could make a movie here, that would be a great reason for us to come here then. And so that kind of started it. And then I, I began to see that it was a very magical city, you know, especially at night when all the kind of westernized Disneyland went away and, and, and Bangkok at night became very Thai but very uh, magical and supernatural and, and became very odd place to be. And I felt this could be a great arena for a film. Mm. And knowing that in the back of my head when I was with Wild Bunch of Comond, and knowing that I would get a lot of value for my money at the same time shooting there, it was like a combination of those things.
1: Mm.
4: Mm. Now, um, the, uh, on just the description of it, it sounds like a very
5: a, a simple concept for the movie like i said it's a western it 's a ba- bad guy, good guy there's you know two brothers um, you know one dies, mother comes to get revenge but there's there is a lot more uh, in in there and, uh, and and one of the themes that you've also talked about and, and i'd love for you to 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 kind of give us um, your impressions of how you develop that and and within that story is the fact that the uh our police lieutenant, um, see, he believes he's God, or he believes you know, he, 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 he has that authority. And then we have, on his opposite, uh, Ryan Gosling's character, who is looking for something to believe in, looking for religion, I think is, is how you put it. Um, that and, and, and that, the, after I saw the film, that was the thing that stuck with me, like a couple of days afterwards, that's the thing. That's the thing was that I was chewing on in my head afterwards. Can you talk about that uh, that theme that runs through the film?
4: Uh, well, um, the way that I work is that um, I um, I uh, I'm a, I approach everything like pornography. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I come from a country that invented pornography. <laughs> uh, so um, I. I come up with ideas of what I would like to see. And then when I have X amount of ideas on index cards, I put them down and I get some kind of construction, like like a story reveals itself within it. And then I expand on that and then it changes and then it becomes the film. And I thought, okay, a fight movie is interesting to do for me because I've never fought in my life. I don't really watch fight movies. I don't really know a lot about martial art films, or anything like that, but I like the concept of it. It was very intriguing because uh, the idea of a, of, a, of a male fist is obviously a sexual extension, and it's a, it's a combination of sex and violence in the male's hand. But when you open it, it's about submission. And I thought that that movement was a movie especially when it came to fight concepts of a film. Um, So that was one idea that kind of began the whole idea of making this film. Um, I was going through a very existentialistic time in my life. Uh, My wife was pregnant with our second child and it was a very difficult pregnancy and we were constantly living in the unknown of what was gonna happen for nine months. And that really messes with your mind and the idea that i couldn't understand why i had to go through this you've kind of tried to figure out why am i going through all this and not knowing and the idea that the womb creates and the womb is like god i felt god if you're putting me through all this pain i really want to fight you so the idea that a man wants to fight god and and kind of Oral concepts started to kind of materialize that then came to this idea of well okay what about doing a mother and son story also because if there was going to be an antagonist in this film it had to be a woman i felt and not a man which is usually very dominant so a mother was so terrifying as a creature i felt especially in a world of so-called you know western concepts uh, so those kind of combinations started materializing, and then all those ideas kind of had to take shape. And then they slowly did that throughout the film. You know, so um,
5: uh, that, I think that's a great segue into our, our first clip that we want to watch here. Mm-hmm. So if we can play the clip, and uh, let's take a look at that, and we'll talk about this after. Well, then there's that. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, one of the things that, 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 that struck me um, immediately watching the film is that um, that you set up a, a world, a tone, and then you, by design, introduce this character who's, who is a bull in a china shop mm-hmm. um, with very long blonde hair. Mm-hmm. Uh now my curiosity is is, you know, you, you hear laughter, but you know, this is not ha ha laughter. This is holy crap, I cannot believe she just said that laughter. Mm-hmm. Uh as you're as you're as you're writing that, as you're mapping it out, and then as you're filming it, um how are you how are you how are you kind of modulating that in your in your mind?
4: Well I just the idea that uh, the film essentially, in the end, became a mother and son story. And then when I had that, I kind of came up with the um, the brother being killed, the mother coming to town, wanting revenge, very much like a Lady Macbethian approach, the two classic, Cain and Abel, struggling it out, and so forth. Um, you know... It was like, okay, then the film actually becomes more, besides the whole revenge theme, it was also a different images of a mother and son relationship. And in the end, the whole movie became about a man who's chained to his mother's womb. And in order to confront his mother, this mysterious Thai policeman uncovers that. He's like the gateway into his confrontation with his mother. And, of course, then there had to be a scene between him and his mother and another girl because that's the classic mother and son dilemma is that when you bring home your first girlfriend and it's the most frightening thing in the whole entire world. <laughs> and you just hope that she doesn't tear you to pieces. And, and, <laughs> and the idea, of course, also that it preys upon that there's a sexual relationship between his mother and himself and there was sexual between the brothers and their mothers and how that devours the whole family and how the mother's like an insect she just eats everything she approaches so it's a very much a heightened fairy tale construction of course right. um, and then it's also about uh because i shoot my films in chronological order uh when we get to scenes a lot of times it's like okay where are we how is it moving how are the characters you know and the idea that it was going to be like a one monologue from the mother, basically showing her power, but also her contempt at the same time her her whole you know kind of godlike theatrical aspects of how she sees herself and so I was with Ryan in in Bangkok, and we were living together basically in the same uh, big, in two different apartments, but like like. T- Tied together, so um, We were when we were sitting Scene it was like, okay, so what 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 would you need to hear as a character? to react the way you need to react in the following scene and Sometimes that's sometimes the trick is when I know I want to get to somewhere I just don't know how to get there sometimes so we have to figure it out how to get there and I was like, okay, so she has to be very um, humiliating to this lovely thai actress or like girl so i asked ryan so what's the worst thing you can call a woman in america and he came with a list <laughs> <laughs> and 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 on that list top of the list was this word crumb dumpster and my first question was well, what is, what does that mean okay <laughs> explaining explaining okay got it all right um so then I went to Kirsten Scott Thomas, which is KST from now on. So I went to KST and I said, all right, you're gonna see, she has a speech teacher with her because she had to go. She was originally, which was originally written as a British film because I changed lead character from a, one actor to another actor, became Ryan. She had to change into an American. And so uh, I said, you're gonna say, you know, come Dumpster in first. And she's like, what's that? <laughs> okay, I explained what a come Dumpster was <laughs> to KST. She goes, ooh, okay. But then of, most, of course, the comedy is that then she has to rehearse the Americanized pronunciation. And you do that by singing. So on set, she was singing, come Dumpster, you know, <laughs> you know, working on that accent. And it became almost like, it took, It was just like the most ironic situation because, you know, it became, a, you know, it became like you thought it was caught in Saturday Night Live, you right. know, at the same time.
5: Hmm. Now, uh, well, let's and let's talk about K.S.D. I'll, I'll, I'll use K.S.D. Yeah. too. Um, how uh, how she came upon the look, the the, the Donatella Versace uh, kind kind of look. <laughs> how 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 did that? I mean, uh, was that of her own accord? Did she bring it to you and go, How do we think about this? You know, how did it come about?
4: Well, uh, when I was originally writing the film and was going to make it, it was a purely British cast because it would help with the European financing system because there is a, a lucrative distribution uh, fund that if you get approved in a certain European way, you, the distributors independently can get funding to release your film. So that's why a lot of films try to capitalize as European production. And so originally the film was going to be British context and it was no stars attached. That was the deal I had done with Wild Bunch and Comon. So I was casting unknown actresses and actors to be in the film. And I cast a young British actor called Luke Evans to play the the protagonist. And then I was casting unknown actresses for his mother, basically. Because A, I didn't have the money to pay anyone, and B, I didn't want to deal with the hassle. But then I couldn't find anyone that had the aid, the sexuality, the power, the flamboyantness, the acting skills, the look, you know, a lot of things needed to fall into place, also at a certain age level. So the casting director said, well, why don't, maybe what about Kirsten Scott Thomas? And she's like, my mother's favorite actress. I'm like, she's never gonna do it. (laughs) She does whatever she does, you know? And he goes, well, let's just try, you know, because we weren't really going anywhere. I said, okay, well, Go for it, you know. So they sent her the script, and she said, I would like to meet. So, okay. So I went to Paris to meet with her, and um, she's everything you expect her to be. Mm-hmm. But I also realized she has no problem turning on the bitch, which. <laughs> so this was going to get interesting. And um, she very much wanted to do the movie, and she said, because she needed to transform to do something different with herself. She was at a time of her career where she wanted to, what she said, do something very, very different than what she was used to. Right. And I was like, well, you're preaching to the choir, what would you like to do? And after we kind of talked about the whole mother concept and what she was from and her background, and all those ideas and the kind of different approaches to the Medea con- you know, theory and all those, um, the insect theory, um, she goes, but I need to change my look also. And I was like, Well what would you like to look like? You know. Because clearly the woman, this Miami feel that she comes from was an idea but I don't know how it would manifest. I mean I would always ask her, What would you like to look like? And then she goes, Well let me think about it and she sent back me a, a photo of herself with a long blonde wig, saying, Maybe something like this, like this kind of like almost like lioness. And then it was like Donatella Versace, here we come. <laughs>
5: <laughs> well, what's great, and especially following up on what you're able to achieve with Albert Brooks from Drive, uh, I mean, this is a, a one, this is mo- much more than than you know than a, a basic cut and dried villain. There, there, there's a lot you know to her in this, and and I and it, it's funny that. You know filmmakers uh, oftentimes talk about well I'll never get this person I'll never get this person um, but by this point do you think because of of, uh, of, of kind of the track record you set with working with not just uh, uh, Albert and, and, and Ryan and dry but even before that with Thomas Hardy and and uh, Mads Nicholson and, and people like that that you have the, the, you know that you kind of, you should have a a damn a solid reputation with being able to get wonderful performances from actors. I would think that would precede you. Um, do you. Are you finding that? Um,
4: I mean, sure, it's gotten easier to get connected to some of the more name-valued actresses or actors. Um, I just think that I always go about with the notion of, I just don't want any headaches. So, you know, <laughs> it's just so much easier. If, you know, if, but at the same time, you know, there's a reason why they are what they are. And then I've been very fortunate, you know, working with Matt a lot or Tom Hardy or now Ryan. I've been very lucky to have relationships that have been very effective in, in what I do. Um, but I think I always go, it's because I also make my films based on how much can I get, how quickly, rather than how much would I like. Because then you have, I would like this or like that reality is if i was to start production in three months how much would i be able to raise Mm -hmm. and that's basically how i work on everything because then i know it's going to be realistic that i do what i do if you then get bigger names great but you know it's not about that and you know i i came at the right place at the right time with her you know same thing with uh because um it was kind of weird because after Drive premiered at Cannes and it was very well received well some people hated it some people loved it but uh, it was at least something a lot of talked about um, I got a call from William Morris and I just you know this Luke Evans guy I had you know casted him worked with him for like six months he was training I was paying for his training in London and stuff William Morris calls and says uh, Luke Evans just got is out what but he are starting in three months I mean I'm I I, I'm, I mean this is July I mean I mean LA at the LA Films Festival and in, in September I go to Bangkok and he's supposed to be there like yeah sorry he got off at the Hobbit like the what <laughs> he got off at the Hobbit <laughs> as what <laughs> <laughs> and and they were like <laughs> well we don't know <laughs> <laughs> but apparently Peter Jackson just bought him out. Really? Yeah. Too bad, huh? <laughs> uh. <laughs> <laughs> so there I was suddenly with no actor, and I had Kirsten Scott. I was like, "Fuck! What do I do?" Because it was really hard. You know, it's like God. I have to go. To- it just took a long time to get to find this guy. So then. Uh, that's, you know, on that period, I, I was actually with Ryan in L.A. And I was like, we were at a place we go to a lot called the 101 Cafe in Los mm-hmm. Angeles. And I was like saying, those fucking actors, man, they're the worst. You can't trust them, man. They will just, fuck, you know, on and on and on and on. <laughs> but then it kind of that night led to, you know what? Let's just do another one. <laughs> and so... <laughs> I remember I called Luke Evans' agent saying, I want you to tell Luke Evans, thank you so much for <laughs> dropping out. And please, I, the best of luck with the Hobbit. Really, the best of luck. <laughs> oh. Well,
5: you know, and I, and I wanted to ask you because uh, you, the, the, you talked about the fact that you, you consider yourself very lucky to have worked with Mads and Tom and and, and Ryan. And, and you can obviously add uh, Kristen and, uh, and Albert to that mix. And what I'm always uh, curious is uh, and I'd love to hear you talk about this when you have an actor like that that's capable of just blowing the doors off um, As a director. Do you go okay now I can dig in I really want to play with them I whether really want you know get, get stuff out of them or the alternative is that I'm, I just get out of the way I'm gonna work on it because they know what they're doing. I'm just going to get out of the way Wh- Which which side do you fall on as a director working with those with actors that can do that?
4: Well I mean good actors would have a heart attack if you went out of the way because its essential part is the relationship between directing and acting. It's a, and it can be a very intimate relationship. I mean it, it, it's a very odd place because you work so intently and then you leave and you don't see each other again but you still have this experience that you will never forget if it you know, if it works out. So, But because I shouldn't chronologically order, in a way, it forces the actor or actress to really involve themselves, because every day I would ask them, so what would you like to do today? You know, mm-hmm. to constantly keep the idea that this is an organism that can change at any time. So in order to make it work, we have to constantly go on this journey together. But I was always very interested in what the actor actress see their journey is because it keeps on developing. So it's just a constant relationship. Um, I do a lot of takes again and again and again. I don't do a lot of setups because I realize it takes long to change setups. I'll just do the same take again and Mm -hmm. again and again. I like to do that. Um, And, um, you know, it's it's a fine... Directing is like uh, being a kindergarten teacher. You have to find the balance where you feel the inspiration take fruit in the actors actress's mind and best if you didn't come up with it just because it helps the sense of performance you know and then there are certain actresses or actresses that like very specific directions there are certain performers that will say i can give you the cold version the laugh version the sad version and then there are actors that everything has to be felt like it's all about the moment and creating the mood, so it varies very much from different aspects, but it's an imp- it's probably the most important thing a director really needs to know is how you deal with actors, because in the end that's what it's all about the emotions and that what we as an audience essentially connect to right
5: and 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 talk about the the balance between like some actors are there immediately, some actors need to warm up, mm-hmm. so to speak. How do you balance kind of getting them to, you know, actors in the same scene to kind of meet in the middle, so to speak?
4: Or or do you worry about that because... Well, you can't worry about it because then you... It's more about sensing the emotion of where you are with who you are, you know? So it's a kind of constant evolution. And then we see what happens. And then you adjust it from there on. I say I shoot rehearsals. I just start shooting from the beginning. I'll shoot everything. And then to the extent where there's nothing left. And then you know that somewhere in there, it worked. I
5: think this, uh, this uh, kind of touches on our next uh, clip here. So if let's, let's play this uh, second clip, and we'll talk about this.
2: You're listening to The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center. The Film Society app, now available for iOS, iPhone and iPad, and Android devices, Let's you browse and discover our year-round programs and films get the latest ticketing alerts and breaking festival news share with friends via social media create your own custom schedule and more download the film society app for free at itunes and google play the film society of lincoln center film lives here and now back to our program
5: The, um, there, 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 there's such, uh, such power in, 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 in that scene, and, and, uh, and, and certainly from that actor. And one of the things that I really love is, is how you work with silence. How, how you, how, um, uh, although I, I also keenly, like I was talking to a friend after I saw the movie, and I said, you know, I could imagine when you're editing, because of, of there are a lot of silences with Ryan where we see you see his character processing and working and so I, I could just see like you know one file which was nothing but ryan sh- shots of ryan thinking yeah you
4: know? it says close up with ryan close up with ryan close up with ryan close up with Ryan. <laughs> talk oh close up with ryan close up with ryan <laughs> so uh
5: um and that's so why i wanted to, uh, to, to play this scene to talk about how you know the, you know the 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 impact of uh of silence because you know there's not, dialogue is very, used very judiciously in this film. And I want whether or not that's, overall, there's a philosophy that you have about using dialogue in film.
4: Uh, well, it, it, I, it may come from two things. First, uh, English being my second language, so it's hard for me a lot of the times to, to, um, to write. But also, I love silence. To me, silence is the loudest, sound there actually exists because silent is pure emotions it has nothing to do with logic it's purely a subjective experience and cinema was essentially created first as a technical device that was invented and with that technical device you would document everyday life activities that then would become a montage and from that montage somebody came up with the idea of storytelling with the camera. And with that came the rest of everything. Um, And so I think that in the purity, the idea of a camera and silence is in a way the most, uh, most, it's the most excessive approach at the same time, it's the most largest canvas because then, It comes about interpretation. And because in this day and age, logic is so much based on words, especially from the Western world, that when it disappears, we almost search for it frantically because we're so used to hearing it. And I like that. I like the sense of searching for something because it forces the viewer to actually go on a journey within the experience.
5: But do you worry because, uh, I, as a filmmaker, I can I can easily see well you know that's that's my vision uh, but I can see like you know producers, money people, whatever going no but you, but you have to remind the audience that they're supposed to look at this. You have to tell them the first act and r- remind them. Do you do you ever find yourselves at odds in that in that tug of war?
4: Well, I produce my own film, so I can only argue with myself, but... <laughs> well, <laughs> well, that helps. Uh, which helps, which <laughs> I do a lot. The financiers, of course, yeah, I mean, it's always... I mean, on, Drive was considered a complete failure before it came out by the financiers. It was like written off as a disaster, you know. What was those fucking long talks and nobody's talking? <laughs> Why are they staring so long? Can't, we, can't you cut <laughs> something? no there's no material (laughs) what there's no material (laughs) but they're staring what what the fuck (laughs) I'm like yeah but they're falling in love (laughs) fuck that you know (laughs) like so it's certainly something that aggravates because it, it it makes everyone feel uncomfortable because we're so used to sound meaning dialogue moving story along that cinema becomes less cinematic and more about logistics of verbal explanations, you know, execution. And I just like very much, i mean, my silent mood of making films that relatively almost have no dialogue in them. I mean, I'm looking forward to going back and making dialogue films again, but right now I really enjoy that world of purely... Forcing myself to tell the story with the camera and design of sound and music and that kind of combination mm.
5: okay. um, Now I'm, I'm gonna get one more question, in, but everybody get ready with your with your questions Because um, you're on after this. <laughs> All right. Um, I want to talk about uh, your, your thoughts on violence, and I'm gonna repeat a quote to you um, Danger and violence is entertainment when it comes with no consequence um, that was your response to uh, to somebody asking you about about this and And it really applies to this film uh, The violence that we expect is not the violence that we get so often in in this film, which I think is great um, You know you, you you set us up for a big fight and that fight is not what we're expecting uh, you set us up for scenes of, uh, of Retribution but that retribution doesn't happen the way that we would traditionally expect it to happen so can you talk about that?
4: Okay. Well, violence is a very odd element when it comes to fantasy. Because art consists essentially of two motions that constantly add at odds with each other, which is sex and violence, desire, um, fear, you know, those are the two things that constantly fight. Let's just bear it to sex and violence and where sex is, is, is harder to fantasize about because in the end, it's an act that's very instinctual and normal for most people to do as much as possible. <laughs> Violence, on the other hand, which is equally a part of our DNA, is pure fantasy because it's a part of our mentality that we know is wrong to do but we have it. So we fantasize about it. Mm-hmm. So that's why violence in fiction, whether it's being literature or, or painting or, or music or cinema, whatever, is very much a dominating force. It's a way of externalizing emotions. And I used to say that violence is an you know, art is an act of violence. It's meant to penetrate you. And it can do that, of course. And there's a big difference between seeing violence and being violated by what you're experiencing. So um, where you can say that in reality, violence is a destructive medium. It only destroys. But in art, violence ins- can inspire. And I'm not talking about you know, people killing each other in terms of entertainment, but the act that you see something that can violate you is what I find interesting. You know, it's a sense of penetration. It's the closest thing to the act with the viewer becoming a two-way experience. And if you look at our physicality, you know, we were born with violent behavior out of necessity. We have parts of our body can be used for violent acts out of self-preservation. Over the years of man evolution, those self-preservation became our normality and acceptance that we find a way to, for society to function. So our violent urges no longer was a necessity to survive because society created our basic needs. But that doesn't mean the urge in our DNA went away. So suddenly all the parts of our body that were violent became our fantasies instead. And that's it's more of an acceptance of that. And of course the combination of eroticism and violence going back to the male physique of a clenched fist, which is essentially a male extension of his sexuality but also his violent act.
5: Okay. <laughs> All right, you guys are up.
1: All right.
4: <laughs> Hello. Hi.
1: Thank you for being here. Um, First question, I got two questions real quick. One is a rehearsal. Can you tell us about what happens on the first day of rehearsal? And can you tell us what happens on the last day of rehearsal? And when you're pitching your your movies, um, what have you come to recognize or learn about yourself uh, not to say? And what have you learned that you should say?
4: What you say is that you're gonna make a lot of money. (laughs) <laughs> because that is essentially what it comes down to in the end. There's basically a list. If, I don't know if there's any filmmakers here, but this is the list that is a great way to think about survival entertainment industry, especially film. We all want to make great films that make a lot of money. Let's call that A. Okay, great. We all aspire to that. It's like Russian roulette. Most of the times it doesn't happen. B, you make good movies... Okay, individually, but okay, good movies that doesn't lose money. You can survive on that for the rest of your life. Then you can make good movies that loses money. That's like a Russian roulette, but with five bullets in it, because essentially you're very quickly you're going to run out of options. Then you can make bad movies that make a lot of money, but nobody cares, because it's just a commodity then. There's no pleasure in the, in the industry of that behavior. Then you can make bad movies that loses money, that's a one-off. <laughs> <Then you're out. laughs> so that's in a way very realistically in terms of surviving in the film industry where, where can you try to be on that scale? And generally if people don't lose money, you know, and they like what you do, you can go on forever. So you tell them what they want to hear. But knowing that you have to deliver it, and also, the less money you have, the more chances are they're going to make their money back sooner. So that's why it always goes back to this idea I have, I'll figure out what's the least I need. If I can just make a movie, can I I get two million dollars? Okay, I'll make the movie two million dollars. And that's not even like, I wish I had 10, or 20, or 30, or 150. Because you may make a hundred million dollar movie, You may even get final cut in contract. You're like the thing, man. You get $100 million, and you get final cut. But if that movie doesn't make $500 billion, you're out the door. And you're never going to make another movie afterwards. So it's all about money in the end. Meaning that if you don't lose money, you can sustain yourself. And that's a very important lesson to really know. And it took me some time to understand that. Especially coming from Europe, where everything is subsidized and it's all about government grants, and you think you're God and you can walk on water and blah 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 blah, we realize it's not like that, baby. You know, it's very very different. Um, and regard rehearsals, um, rehearsals are painful. Oh, they're so embarrassing. You're so nervous, and nobody wants to say anything. People are looking down like that. And so I I approach them like, okay, let's just try something. Where would you like to stay in? Would you like to sit over there? And beforehand, I do, we do a lot of talking, me and the actors, and it's mostly what not to do. Because I'm not really interested in what to do, because then I know what's gonna happen. I would like to see what's gonna happen. Like, I'm more interested in asking, uh, uh, asking uh, art, what are you not rather than what you are? Because I'm, I, I get high on the discovery process, the actual activity of creating, the final product, I don't really have a lot of interest in. Like, I never see my films after I'm done with them. I, I've been forced to do it twice at Cannes, and I hate it. It's the fucking worst thing in the world. <laughs> I have no interest in it because it no longer, the, I have no joy in it because the process of creating is over. And I, then it's like, and it has no meaning to me. Um, but the rehearsal period is very much consist of just moving trying things out doing all the mistakes and being open about that and really you know because it's a very intimate arena and then in chronological order i would say halfway into shooting it just starts to dictate itself for some strange reason it, it always ends up like that it's almost like the film starts to create its own dna hmm.
5: yes uh, ho- ho- hold on a let let's see your
1: microphone
2: in the beginning, you talked about you didn't want to deal with headaches. Um, I'm going into my second year of grad film at NYU, and I just shot a film and I had an actor on set that was a complete headache. And you didn't see it coming at first, like rehearsal was great and everything. So I want to know, in your opinion, uh, when you're on set and the person happens to be a headache, how do you handle that and what steps do you take to try to mitigate it?
4: Well, I have had a lot of problem with aspirins <laughs> because of this. Um, look. The, the thing is that because filmmaking is a combination of so many different talent and various art forms combining in a way, because is, filmmaking is a director's medium in the end. That's essentially what it is. So they're all there to kind of be part of whatever you want to do. And it's a bit like being a kindergarten teacher going back to the analysis. You know, you have to create the harmony you have to be strict you have to be kind you have to be open you have to be sometimes you just want to scream in their faces but then you smile at them and you go interesting okay all right you don't want to do that all right okay you know <laughs> what else then what i mean it's it's manipulation it's like the worst thing you can do is cave in and become hysterical because then everybody just loses interest so it's it's like being a the ultimate parent and it's that can be pretty excruciating sometimes
5: you've talked about um uh that after you complete like uh you edit the film like a thousand different ways with uh mm. the other uh, matt newman yeah um uh have you ever found yourself um having to cut around somebody
4: uh n- not lately but in the past yeah i probably cut down on people or or, or th- yeah i mean i n- my father's an editor, so I, you know, I, I grew up on Steinbeck's and, and those kind of eric places. So, uh, but I haven't really been um, not cutting around. No, but I know of other people that have, and I certainly have. I see films where I can see where where, where that's an issue, but. There are times when you just want to get it in the can and just get the fuck out of here and then (laughs) deal with it afterwards. But there is no answer to that question you have because it's so individual the way you handle it. My experience has always been love them till death. Even how much of a fucking pain in the ass it is, love them till death, you know? All right,
5: let's get somebody in the back here. You in the fourth corner. Uh, You, yes. Uh, Hold on, we need to get a microphone up to you.
0: Hi. Uh, first of all, the trailer is like the best trailer I've ever seen. So thank you for that. Uh, but my question is, <laughs> uh, you have made films that have often been interpreted in very strange ways. Uh, for example, there was some woman who sued or something or accused you of being anti-Semitic in Drive, and uh, you know other people associated with the Occupy movement, other you know uh, you know crazy things. Anyway, so uh, what do you feel? Uh, I, I, do you ever feel that you're ever trying to sort of attach some sort of agenda, obviously not being anti-Semitic, but uh, <laughs> you know, attach some sort of agenda to a film? And, uh, or are you really just trying to create a story on its own? And what's the weirdest interpretation of a film that you've ever heard somebody got?
4: Uh, well, I, I, I'm not a political filmmaker, so I have no agendas, I have no specific points of view. On the contrary, I love chaos and anarchy in terms of that aspect in art. I think everything is open and accessible. Uh, I've experienced a lot of things, I've been called a lot of things over the years, Uh, and certainly on this latest film, there's been very polarized opinions of myself. Um, The oddest thing lately has been in Cannes, um, a woman came up to me in a very German accent and she said to me, I think this movie takes place in the vagina, yes? <laughs> but what was really interesting was that I said, I think you're right. <laughs> I, just, I just never thought of it like that. But that is, oh my God, thank you so much.
5: <laughs> so for the Bangkok Travel Commission. Yeah. You know, so <laughs> I
4: knew that.
5: Okay, who we have... Uh, here, You're in the far corner. Far back? It's me? Yes. Okay.
0: Hi, Nicholas. I just want to say thank you so much for um, producing an aesthetic that we're not desensitized to yet. I mean, I feel like violence for violence's sake is something that um, just is blocked. It's, it's we- it doesn't affect us anymore, but you use violence to tell a story. So that's what my question's about. Um, as a writer, it's astounding that you have that confidence to let your Writing develop itself. So, from the note card process to using chronological um, chronological shoots, have you always had that confidence in your writing, or did you do, did you realize this is the best way for your stories to come out?
4: Uh, well, it's actually something I stole from John Cassavetes uh, <laughs> when I when I made my first film. Um, my mother um, and i was 24 when i made my first film my mother gave me one of those cassavetes books that was extremely boring because it was very analytical so i skipped almost every page until i got to one area where he, they talked about or he talked about shooting this film in chronologically order and i go well if he did it i can do it not really knowing what that actually meant in terms of, of pros and cons but, I think it had to do with that when I was in my late teens, I went to see killing of a Chinese Bookie at a Cinematheque in Copenhagen. I just remember saying, "I want that kind of acting how how do you do that and i went then I went to the same acting school as junk Caseva did in New York New York Academy of Dramatic Arts hated it but uh so when the crorie came in, it would just it became more of the sense that I liked to see it unfolding, and I realized that if I don't do it like this, it just doesn't really interest me very much, you know? It's like um, it just all becomes mechanics and, and I, it just doesn't excite me and, and I just accepted that fact. Um, and um, I always consider violence like bad pornography. You know, there's nothing worse than bad pornography and that's how I see a lot of violence becoming. But, you know, erotica is so much more exciting so violence essentially works more or less in subliminal images. That's when it really becomes powerful and has an effect.
0: So it's kind of like that organism again. You, once the film is finished, you're no longer in the process of creating it.
4: I climaxed. <laughs> the <that> day was over. <laughs>
5: now, let me touch on the shooting chronologically. Because a lot of filmmakers, because of budget, they just don't have that option. Um, you know, they have to use, you know, they have to shoot everything out of one location and move on. Uh, have you just been incredibly fortunate that, that you've either been able to, to, to uh, map out your budgets effectively enough to do that?
4: Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's basically something you ch- you got to, it's a choice in the beginning. And a, you, there are, you know, it, it hurts. It, it costs. But my budgets had never have mostly been between half a million to three and a half to three. Drive was fourteen, but it was L.A., so it was still like making a three million dollar movie because the equivalent of time I had doing Drive was the same thing I had like on doing, you know, this movie in Bangkok or something like that. So it's something that it's a conscious decision, and I certainly give up. You know, I give up other things like production design, for example. Usually, it gets cut down to minimal mm. because I need money to buy days, or I need money to buy move, company movement or things like that.
1: Okay.
5: Okay. Who we have next? Uh, somebody in the middle. You in the hat? Hey, how you doing? Big fan um, from the Thank Pusher you. trilogy. Those are awesome movies. But one of my favorite aspects of your movies are the soundtracks. For example, Bronson. You have the electrician. Glass candy, drive you yeah, tick of the clock by the chromatics. How do you go about picking your soundtracks?
1: Uh,
4: well I love music, just I mean I I, I I can't play a note in my life or sing a song, but I usually I don't do drugs anymore, so music <laughs> is a very much a way of heightened emotions, a way to kind of get inspired and a lot of my films comes out of ideas of music and i even have this trick where i try to when i'm working on a movie i try to figure out if it was a kind of music what would it be and then i would listen to that type or genre of music so it drives people crazy i mean on bronson the idea was that if this was a a mu- piece of music it would be the pet shop boys all right so for like four months pet shop boys would be playing a lot driving everybody else insane but it kind of keeps you in that mode of what you're doing you know on drive it was craft work, the idea of electronic music that had a romanticized feel to it, but yet it was part of the future because it was so um, pure in a sense so things are different at different areas that inspires you, uh, but I just generally like all kinds of music and then uh, my biggest collab or most important collaborator is my editor Matt Newman who we have done four movies together and he's a big part of that musical because he really likes, I'm that kind of guy who's still like oh great we got a Duran Duran compilation <laughs> but he'll be like well let's try other stuff as well you know and then he'll come with sometimes some options and then and, and I'll say what I like and I don't like and things like that.
5: Do you find yourself, do you, uh, do you enjoy cutting to music as opposed to putting Yes, music very in?
4: much. I mean, we use a lot of source music when we cut. And then I cut the films in a trillion different kind of ways because the idea of images telling a story, and if you combine the images in different ways, it, you always get different kinds of stories. So it's a way to figure out what can your material actually do, what can it actually mean. I very much enjoy that part of it.
5: Okay, we have time for two more. Two more questions, and we go right to you in the middle. And
2: um, so, my question has to do with ethics. Most of your films don't really abide by any sort of Christian sentimental ethics. Like the driver, he does his job like a CIA agent until the girl comes along, and it becomes about protecting her and her son. In Bronson, he just wants to destroy. My question is, does Julian have his own moral code that's unique to him, or do we get to see him find one?
4: The idea of the Julian character came about what would, you, what would the world be like if you were chained to your mother's womb? You know, Of course, in reality, that means if you have a controlling mother. But in heightened reality, that's what essentially you are. And then you become what we describe as a sleepwalker. You're basically awake, but you have no control over your life. And every time you try to rebel against your mother, she overpowers you and belittles you and dehumanizes you and degrades you. So he's a character of, of that is on, an, on a journey without knowing the result. Which, you know, usually in every writing prospect you learn, make sure your protagonist has a point of view, make sure your protagonist has an agenda, make sure your protagonist has, has something to lose. And that's true, but it's not always the fun thing to do. And certainly, you can twist those concepts around, like start, middle, and end. You can twist around. So the idea of Julian essentially being everything around evolves around him, but he's the one who doesn't move physically, but only mentally. Okay.
5: The last question. No pressure. And
4: right here. Two seconds. And I can actually hear you from
1: here. My question is kind of typical, but I kind of wanted, really wanted to ask it because I think it's still important to a lot of people in this room. And it's just um, if you had to offer like any piece of advice whatsoever to aspiring filmmakers like anywhere, what would you say? OK, in terms it's your, of your
5: advice. Everybody's going to follow this.
1: <laughs> not, not in that way. The go-
5: gospel oh. according to Nicholas.
1: Yes.
4: Um. I asked that very same question when I was 24 to Eli Kassan in Stockholm. We were having ice cream. and <laughs> true. And uh, I was, so, Eli, uh, what would you, advice would you give a young filmmaker? And he said to me, my advice to you, and I'll come with an explanation afterwards. My advice to you, he said, is do it your way. Now, at 24, that meant one thing for me. You know, that was like, yeah, man, fuck that, I'm, I'm the king of the world, move away. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm God. But my way also meant when I didn't have as much luck and I failed, that I remembered what my way could also mean. So in a way, it's a way to describe that your career is going to vary. It's going to have its ups and downs. It's going to have its heartache. It's going to have its joy. It's going to feel all the pleasure. And don't forget, the more pleasure it is, the harder it is going to be to fall. But without falling, you're never going to feel the pleasure. So I thought in the end, his idea of saying to me, do it your way, just meant that make the films you want to make, be prepared, but in the end, make them how you want to make them. Great way
5: to close it. Thank you, Nicholas, for coming by.
2: The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Brian Brooks, Nick Kemp, and Michael Oatmark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit FilmLink.com, F I L-M-L-I-N-C.com. The Film Society of Lincoln Center, film lives here.